good morning. This is quite a momentous day for football, I think. Um, I'm joined by Niall Cooper from Fair Game. Niall, you must be delighted with the day. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, been a long time coming. A lot of hard work has gone into it. And what we've got is a review that ticks a lot of our boxes um, for us. You know, we're, we're representing 31 different clubs now. And uh, what we've got is a strong commitment towards sustainability, community and integrity, which have always been our three key principles. So, yeah, we're, we're pretty chuffed at the moment. There's still a lot of work to do, but, to do, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a nice sunny day. Excellent. Should we take a step back and just, uh, in, in your own words, explain what the process has been so far in terms of how we got to this point, and then we can get into the report, uh, what's in the report, what are the main recommendations, and then most importantly, I think for everybody, is what we have to do uh, from this point going forward. Well, and when I say we, I mean you, I mean fair game, and I mean everybody that listens to this podcast that's a, that is a football supporter, because um, there's still work to be done, isn't there? It's loads of work to be done. See, I mean, this all began, I mean, you could trace it back decades and decades and decades. Um, but let's just go back to the, the, the 2019 when it was included in the uh, the manifesto, the Conservative Party manifesto to, to have a family review. And there were a lot of sceptics around at the time about what, what it would mean and whether it would actually go anywhere. And then you can kind of jump forward to the start of this year um, with the... Uh, well, firstly, we fair game launched just in February and we started putting some pressure on. And then there was the arrival of the wonderful European Super League and the, the fiasco that that caused. So those two things happened at more or less the same time. Fair game, we launched slightly before that. And that kind of puts the government into a bit of a tailspin. And they wanted to do something quite quick to, to react to that and to end the, any prospect of a, of a European Super League ever happening again. And that meant that they kind of fast-tracked back in, back there, the manifesto and, they, they, uh, and their commitment to having a family review. So that came right back into it again, which is brilliant news for, for football. I think. Um, the European Super League obviously was not, but that, uh, that disappeared quite quickly, thankfully. And from there, then <coughs> Tracy Crouch pulled together a panel quite quickly and has done hundreds and hundreds of hours of meetings with uh, various different clubs and stakeholders, uh, fair game included. And we basically looked at what we can do and what suggestions should be should be happening. The big thing for us at Fair Game was that uh, we didn't want to just sort of be pointing fingers and saying, saying things, this is broken and that's broken and this is broken and so on. We actually wanted to develop realistic long-term solutions as well because that's the bit I think was really missing um, and always has been to some extent, because a lot of people have always just said, well, well you know, well, we need to do something, but never outlining what that something was. So at Fair Game, we, we linked in with loads of people with expertise in that, in that world of football, kind of leading academics and people with real lived experience in football. And we basically asked them to, to take the issues that the clubs identified uh, and say, right, well, what's the solution? What is the what do we need to do? And uh, we pulled together our own manifesto and, and works um, from that, lobbied and spoke to the government quite heavily about that. And we, we've been working with the Football Sports Association as well through this process. So I think football as a community is really coalescing and coming together and realising that something needs to be done. And we can't just let it lie with decision makers being five or six 
multi-billionaires making decisions for clubs and communities that have been there for decades and centuries. And that's kind of where we've taken ourselves to. And, and so that process has, has gone on and there was an interim re, uh, report from uh, Tracy Crouch in September. And then yesterday we got the, the review, which is something that um, if implemented would be momentous for football. Uh, and I, I don't use that word lightly. Um, it really would be a game changer and would secure football in a far better direction than it's ever been before. So yeah, we 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 welcome it hugely. But uh, you know, the work's just begun. Yep, excellent. Okay, well, let's get into the key recommendations, and then we can talk about actually what we then need to, need to do. So, of course, all 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 of the recommendations are predicated on the fact that there's going to be an independent regulator. Yeah, yeah, that's true, and I think that's absolutely essential. Um, you know, that goes back to the fact that. Uh, People have been aware of the problems for a long time and it's not as though the Football Association, the Premier League, the EFL haven't been aware of that. So the need to have somebody who actually did it and was independent and didn't have um, you know, their own interest, self-interest involved, that sort of thing needed to end. You need to have people that could properly look at it from a holistic view that wasn't uh, prejudiced by their own club involvement. And I think... That's what we've got to now. And that's why I think the independent regulator has to be the solution. A lot of people would say the FA should be doing that role, but the FA have had the opportunity for years and years and years. And I think they're a, they're a busted flush at the moment. Uh, it's going to take the FA itself needs quite fundamental reform. And maybe one day the independent regulator would fall to the FA, but we're talking 10 to 15 years before that's going to be possible. So the independent regulator has to be the only solution for uh, to dealing with the issues that we've got in the game. I think, I think the, the idea that uh, an operator such as the Football Association that has so many, uh, and I don't mean this in a, in, a, in a derogatory sense, has so many vested interests in the game because they've invested so much time and effort and money in, you know, in promoting their own causes. It, it's impossible for anybody, be it the FA, be it the Premier League or be it the English Football League or anybody else to have that investment to have that interest and then to be uh, an appropriate regulator so the idea that we have an independent regulator and the idea that anybody who wants to operate a professional football club in the top in any of the top five divisions in england will now have to obtain a license from the regulator and in order to obtain that license meet the conditions of the license is a massive step change I think it's a huge step change, you know, and we need to be in that situation where you do hold clubs to account and they have an actual responsibility. I think one of the big words that uh, we need to start using much more is that custodianship. Um, Because for me, when you look at it, a club, you know, an owner of a club can go, they can, they can get bored, they can die, they can, you know, whatever, the whole load of things. But the club needs to be there for the long haul. And that kind of leads on to another key point, which is the golden share. We call it the crown jewels at Fair Game, but it's the uh, the badge, the name, the nickname, the location of the club. And that needs to be protected. Uh, and the idea of a golden share, that means that that can't be changed without the will of the fans, I think is really welcomed. And uh, I think that's a very good 
step forward. I mean, it would stop, you know, what happened to the club I support at, so it wouldn't ever happen again. And also for things like Hull City being the Hull Tigers and Cardiff playing, the Bluebirds playing in red, those sort of things, you know, are, are quite fundamental to a football fan. So that protection, I think, is really important. And that really folds into quite a lot of the licensing system, but it also comes with that financial sustainability. So there's quite a lot in there. And I think the licensing system is definitely uh, to be really welcomed. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, look, looking down down the list, uh, the regulator would have uh, would oversee finances, for example. Yeah, I mean, that's what it says in there is that they would have that um, oversight. And I think actually what we need to be looking for is a little bit more power than just oversight. Um, what's interesting is there's the 10% levy, which is good uh, because that would help a lot in terms of the grassroots. And, you know, that sort of levy, the money you're talking about wipes out the debt that you would have in League One and League Two almost overnight. Um, and that is to be welcomed. But I think what you need to do is that money needs to be controlled by a regulator to decide who gets that cash. Because I think where you've got to is a situation, don't just give the money out, but actually give the money out for clubs that be proved to be well run. They need to be used as an incentive because otherwise you're just going to be basically allowing uh, clubs to have the same financial risks as before, but they'll just be operating at a slightly higher level. So until you sort out that culture, then we are really just bottling up a problem for the future. I think that's the that's the big issue when you talk about financial regulation. And I think that's what a power I'd like to see the independent regulator getting, which while hinted at in the review isn't outlined yet. And I think that's something that we need to still push for because I think that could be a real cultural change that football needs. I think it's interesting in the context that if you look at what's ha- going to happen in UEFA and if you look at what's likely to happen in the Premier League, is there's actually going to be a relaxation of financial fair play, profitability and sustainability rules um, to allow clubs to make losses in the future. And as long as it's backed by uh, a wealthy enough owner, the UEFA, and, and I, I'm almost certain the Premier League would follow in this um, in order to maintain its competitive position in Europe. That's very much at odds with what actually we're proposing or, or is being proposed within this review. Yeah, I think now there's an element of a, of a problem about that. I mean, the thing is, is that when you talk about financial sustainability, then what it really needs to be is it's about cash flow. Mm. So it's a really simple one to, um, it's a really simple one just to say that what you need is to make sure that you have the reserves in hand to be able to afford that. And equally, if the owner was to walk away, is that club sustainable? Those are the big questions that need to be asked. And what I mean by sustainable, is there money in that club to make sure that it can honour all its contracts at least for the next 12 months? And actually the kind of common business role would be for three years. And that's what we need to be moving towards. So going in the other direction is not helpful. But I think this review is looking at making sure that football is sustainable. And we need to always, always ask that question. What happens if the owner walks away? Um, because if the club can't survive on that, then a model within that club needs to change. And that's where I'm very much in favour of clubs looking at generating their own revenues and really becoming embedded in their community so that they are sustainable if that was to happen. Um, because otherwise you're just bottling up problems for the future. 
Yeah, I, I totally get that. One of the key things also is the new owners and directors test, which obviously yeah. you know stops. Well, one would hope would stop some some of the situations that have you know we've had in the past with Barry, uh, the situation that we've had at Sw- you know Swindon Town, for example. Um, any 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 comments on on that in terms of how far the the, the, the review is considering going on that? What, what's What's the significant difference between what we've got now and what we might have in the future? This is going to be a lot of this is vested interest. So having an independent regulator that's making those decisions that isn't being swayed by multi millions coming into the game. That's where you get a much more, again, rigor and actual kind of thinking about what is fit and what kind of people do you want to be running in football? And that's why I think there's a big difference. That's why I think you can see a big Advantage. I think one's interesting is that what was missing a bit from the earnings and direct test, one of the things that we were calling for, is this idea of uh, criminality. And that if you committed a crime overseas or be deemed to be a crime in UK law, then you shouldn't be able to run a football club in the UK. And currently that is a real grey area. It needs to be tightened up. So what I like by the look of what, we're, what the earnings and directors test is saying is much more rigour in that test a much more independent view of what's happening. There's still bits that need to be tightened up. There's still a little bit of work to be done there, but it's certainly a step in the right direction. And, you know, we'll get a bit more clarity. And actually, you just also need a bit more speed. I think when you look at the example of Newcastle United, um, you know, you can go what you think, whether you think about Saudi Arabia as a country, there are two issues here. One of which is that that decision about whether they were owners uh, should have, you know, should have been clearer before they even made a bid. And secondly, the decision-making process went on for far too long and left a club and all their fans in massive limbo. And it should have just been a yes or a no almost immediately. And that would have been easier if the rules had been much clearer and the regulation and the kind of people who administrated the director's test had that power to do so. Neither of those things existed. So that's where we need to look uh, forward and changing the system. I think the review hints at that, but we just need to make sure that that has that extra rigor that we need. And I think that's what one of the things that we need to look at seeing developed over the uh, next few months. Good. The uh, The other change, I suppose, which is related to this is um, a new approach to corporate governance. Governance is a big, is, is a big issue for me in terms of, you know, how, how well or not an organization is run. I think, I think you can always look at it, you, you seldom find good organisations with poor governance. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot about that and a, a lot about looking at it. For me, this, this is, again, goes back to the regulator. You know, it's the vested interest in the game and the conflicts of interest, which are just have caused a stagnation. And then also the other issue is when you look at how clubs account or you know, run their own accounts. It means you are currently comparing chalk and cheese. So you just really don't know how serious problems are. And for us, one of the big things that we'd be looking to is move towards standardized accounting and real-time accounting. Real-time accounting is, is in part of the review, and we totally endorse that. Because at the moment, we're aware of 77 different forms of accounting within the 92 clubs. And that just means that it becomes an almost impossible task to realise which clubs are in financial difficulty and which aren't. And because there's no there's no real governance to control that, there's no real element of saying, right, well, you're 
a member of the EFL, you're a member of the Premier League, and therefore you have to adhere to these particular standard processes to make sure that we can make sure that you are properly accountable. That doesn't happen at the moment, and it's clearly a massive gap in the game, and it's something that uh, you know we at Fair Game fully, fully believe needs to be addressed. Let's let's move on to something that really uh, interests me, and you know you, you've you've seen some of my comments previously on WhatsApp groups and stuff, and that's the involvement of fans within the game in terms of you know the running of their clubs, and in particular this proposal of a shadow board. Um, I'm interested to hear your views on that. Shadow board's a really interesting one. I mean, one of the things that um, we've been looking at on Fair Game. I mean, there's a couple of things I think here. One of the things is, you know, have a proper uh, structured fan engagement is important because ultimately it's the fans that the club belongs to in a way. And that, I think, is really important. The shadow board stuff is interesting in the sense of one of the things, as, as coming from a you know, person who currently sits on the, the board of uh, the Don's Trust, owners of to Wimbledon, is that you need to have the skill set of properly trained individuals who can run a club. And it means that if a club goes into difficulties, there needs to be an obvious body or organisation that can step in. And, you know, people often talk about that could be supporters' trusts. And, you know, there's a place for supporters' trusts. But what we need to do is skill up those people within those trusts so that if, you know, the worst happens and their club gets into trouble financially that they are positioned, well positioned and have the skill set to step in. So, you know, potentially that's what you should be looking for from a shadow board is having that, you know, properly trained, say, financial officer, chief executive, all the kind of key positions that you would have in a football club, but available straight away. And that is not something that I think is pie in the sky because we need to start looking at our fan base as being that as a skill set that we need to use. And it needs to be much more... Um, part of the future of a club and uh, as women we're lucky in the sense that that's exactly what happens now but you know we're we're a quite unique example and we you know i'd want to see that potential there at most other clubs and it also makes sure the clubs are held to account uh, and is actually run in a kind of fair and open way and that's that can only be a benefit for the game long term i, I see the benefits I, I suppose um the question for me is certainly with some of the larger clubs as to as to their willingness to uh, allow that model to to, to be ad- adapted um and then they get in you know i i've already had conversations with a couple of uh, premier league directors this morning about you know you get into areas of uh, commercial co- confidentiality and stuff and the difficult position that uh the members of the shadow board would find themselves in in the sense that the fans would want to know everything that's discussed, but sometimes there are things that can't be discussed publicly. Yeah, I mean, that's always going to be an issue. And I think that that's, um, that's understandable. It really is. You know, I, I, and I get that. And certainly, you know, I mean, we have, I have that regularly as a, as a member of the Donald's Trust. Um, but that's also part of the responsibilities you take on as a shadow director. Absolutely, yeah. Also the ability that you need to be aware of it. And I think there is a, a little bit of... Um, a need for supporters to realise that it's not just a, you know, you don't get all your answers. You know, there are some things that uh, the clubs have to do. 
and have to kind of keep secret. And that's difficult. And I think there is a learning curve that needs to happen within the game, within supporters. Um, I think that's that's healthy. I really do. I think that's a healthy way to make sure we kind of you get a kind of two-way street understanding. Um, and that's, that's I think, would be a benefit also for Shadow Board. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm actually in favour of the maximum degree of uh, fan involvement uh, right at the very top of um, of all clubs, regardless of their size. I suppose it, it will be it will necessitate though a, a an education process with fans as to what exactly the shadow board is capable of doing, what exactly it can report, but also you know very importantly the benefits of it and the much higher degree of accountability that will then exist uh, in terms of you know the board the, the proper board you know, the, the board of directors of each of the clubs because you know I know from my own club the board of directors are completely unaccountable to the fans, absolutely un- unaccountable to the fans. And in a situation where you've got a, a single major shareholder, they're only accountable to that individual. Um, and at least this process, as, as described, um, will go a long way towards change, changing that accountability. Yeah, I think so. I think that's where, um, I mean, we just need to take that. I think it should become a, a, a no-brainer, really, and a lot of this sort of stuff that, you know, we kind of should be going, like, well, actually, of course we should have this. And it's difficult because you do get people... It's, it's one of the things I've discovered doing stuff with Fair Game is that there are, you know, I, I can't remember who famously said it, but, you know, there's a load of old white men in football that mm-hmm. uh, probably need to wake up a little bit and realise that there's an, uh, an, a new way of doing things and kind of be happy to lose their... Um, you know, be, be be confident about what fans can do and not be sceptical. You know, ultimately, you know, we all love the clubs that we support and, uh, you know, we're not actually there to damage or danger, put in danger our own club because we want it to thrive. But they, we have to also think about how do we do that and how do we hold ourselves to account? And I think that's where the benefit lies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned an, an, an interesting point there, which is one of the recommendations or one of the areas um, w- within a report. And that's, uh, I think, two things. It's the to improve um, equality, diversity and inclusion, which uh, is, is self-evident, um, but it needs to be said and it needs to be um, a key part of football going forward. And also, I think, um, parity in terms of the women's game. Yeah, I mean, the, the women's game is a really interesting one because I think that there is there's two elements to this. One of which is the fact that uh, we really need to realise that it's a massive growing sport and that we need to realise that uh, in our terraces within the men's game, there is a real underrepresentation of women and we need to address that and actually start reaching out and encouraging women's participation, not just as players, but also spectators. Uh, I think that is, I find it's astonishing that when you talk about financial sustainability, that you have a game that isn't really reaching or marketing to half the population. So that's where I, I see a massive gap there. And then actually the, the growing growth of the women's game itself needs to really start moving towards uh, that level of parity. And I think what you need to do is see an investment of potential there and start looking at the revenue and the attendances that you're getting at women's games, which is growing, 
and seeing that level of funding and support to be put on a kind of uh, a relative tracker towards the attendances. And we can see that growing. So I think that's definitely an area that we should look at supporting as well. Exactly. And the, the, the final of the 10 recommendations, um, and it's the first time I've, I've, I've ever seen this in, in a, a document of this type, it relates to the welfare of players. Yeah, that's an interesting one. It's not one that I've we've kind of really looked at at Fair Game that much. I mean, I'm aware of it from uh, working with a couple of other organisations that we've been talking with that are kind of loose partners with us. And it's, you know, looking at the future and, and where clubs can go, where, sorry, where players go, you know, and what happens to them afterwards. And it's kind of like they're, you know, they're seen as commodities and actually they're human beings and that things can go wrong within their own lives and, you know, within what happens to them and, you know, look at the kind of uh, travesty of some of our, you know, football legends, the, the Gascoins, the Paul Mersons and so on. Uh, but then there's also the ones that are at the bottom end that were, that, um, you know, didn't make it or were cut at an early age and how much of a devastation that caused to them. And I think we need to realise that, that that's the case as well. So I think there is a place for looking at uh, well-being. And, you know, we've probably not done that right as a game for a long time, and it definitely has its place. Absolutely. I mean, from, from my perspective, particularly the way youngsters are treated within academies, um, marrying the, the, the obvious desire of a, of a young child and, and his parents, his or her parents, to, be, to want to become professional footballers, but also recognising that there's got to be some balance because the, the probability of becoming a professional footballer is actually very small. So, it, it, sorry? It's, I was saying it is tiny. Yeah. So the, the, the idea that there is a, and, and as part of this licensing system, that there's an obligation to uh, consider the welfare of players at every age, really, from you know five, six, whenever it is that they start playing football, all the way through to, I guess, to retirement, that uh, the game has an obligation uh, to these people. It doesn't matter how, how well rewarded some of them are. Um, just as an employer, it has an obligation to be a better employer than it has been probably throughout its history. Totally, and I think that that's, that's something that, um, you know, again, it's this kind of idea that they're that footballers are commodities. Yeah, you know that they're they're just like, you know, imagine if you're running out playing football and that whole stand starts screaming and shouting at you for one reason or another. How can that not have an effect on you? How can or on the other end, how can, you know, if you've gone through a life where your parents have pushed you into, you know, doing this and you've travelled up and down the country and that's all you've known, which is the case for academy players. You know, they go to far from parts of the country, which are you know, massive journeys for a 14 or 15-year-old. And then they get rejected. And that's their whole life for the last six, seven years has been that. And there's there's nothing left. And that itself can be absolutely devastating. You, we just need to be more aware of what that means and what that feels like for for young people. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we've come through the, the, the 10 ma- major points of, of the report. Um, what happens next? And particularly, what do we need to do as fans uh, in order to ma- maintain pressure on the government and, and, and in order to 
maximize the, the probability or possibility of all of this coming to fruition? This is where we really have to step up now. So, I mean, for me at Fair Game, there was always two, there was always two phases to this. One of which was make, trying to make sure the review had as much in it that was worthy for football. And um, I think we're, you know, I'd, I'd feel you know, 90% happy with what we've got, which is great. But the next bit is making sure it actually happens. Um, because in the past, we've had examples where football has had the opportunity to change and it's failed. Um, and what we need to do now is make sure our politicians step up to the plate and that it actually, this legislation moves fast and quickly. Um, the reaction, the statement from the minister this morning, uh, which welcomed Tracy Crouch's review and then said that we need to move at pace, at pace to make sure this big, the independent regulator becomes a legislation. Um, my concern is always the word pace there. And I want it to be fast, I want it to be quick, and I don't want it to be kicked into the long grass. And I think that's where fans can really, really take a lead here. We need to mobilise political opinion. We need to mobilise public opinion to make sure that the changes that are in there are really pushed forward and happen. And in fact, they can be tightened up and strengthened. There should be no room for weakening what those proposals are. And there will be those rich billionaires and football clubs that uh, will try and water it down because actually, you know, and I, I actually I've heard this from a, an EFL person, so, you know, be even more applicable in the Premier League, that uh, the problem with football is the, uh, the inconvenience of having to look after supporters. That was what one owner said in an EFL meeting. And it, that attitude probably exists even more in the Premier League. You know, they don't actually need much of the revenue of what comes through on a match day because of the TV revenues. And we need to move away from that. And that's where we need to look at the whole big picture. Otherwise, we lose the game that we love. And we lose the one opportunity to change it into something that is worth much more than it is at the moment. So it's reach out to your MPs. Make sure your MPs are talking about this in Parliament. Make sure they're pushing for it, uh, for legislation. Reach out. We've been reaching out to councillors. So councils becoming fair game councils. They can contact fair game, uh, contact at fairgameuk.org, uh, and we can provide draft motions for councillors to submit uh, to their councils to become a fair game council. We can help with that lobbying process as well to MPs because it's vital. Um, without that political mobilisation, this won't happen. It's that simple. And so that's where we need to now shift our focus. We've got a review that has the roadmap to you know, far better future. But without that political will, it won't happen. And that's where we've got to go now. I think to add to that, if you don't mind me doing so, is the responsibility of, of, of ordinary fans who want to see a better game, a better, you know, a better sport, football in a better place. There's a responsibility on all of us to make sure um, that our clubs support uh, the recommendations of, of this report, because ultimately, for it, for it to be done, it's it's easier for it to be done if it has the support of football, rather than just being imposed upon football. And if there can be a sort of a, a ground movement up upwards, rather than uh, some form of implementation that's forced upon uh, the game, that would be so much better. So. You know, I would recommend, certainly would recommend to all my Evertonian friends that 
we we tell our club that this is good for the game and it's good for the club, but most importantly, it's good for the game as a whole. And if the game as a whole is in a healthier place, then all clubs are in a healthier place. It's not necessarily anti-competitive to do this. In fact, it's the reverse. The game should become more competitive if the game itself is stronger, fairer, and you know better regulated, better managed. I totally agree, and it's a it's a point that um, you know I should have made quite clear. It's obviously fair games are uh, a group of value driven clubs. We'd want fans to reach out and ask their clubs to become a fair game club. You know, I mean, it, it shouldn't be a difficult ask for a football for a, a football club to say, right, well, I back sustainability, integrity, and community, which is what we ask for. Um, you know, it shouldn't be a difficult ask. It should be a complete no brainer for every football club. But the fact that we've not had, you know, floods of people coming towards us, we've got a good number, we've got a good size. We could do with more. We could do with more people really rallying behind and seeing the benefit of this for the long term for football. So, yes, yeah, certainly I would encourage fans to reach out to their owners and to their supporters trusts and really lobby for them to become part of fair game. And, you know, cause that is a, a real fundamental difference that we can make. Good stuff. Now I know you've got a really busy day and you on national media uh, immediately after speaking to me. So I will, um, I'll thank you for, for spending time talking to me. Um, also thank you for all the work that you've done, not only you obviously, but all of your colleagues at fair game and at many of the other sort of organisations and bodies that have put this, uh, put the pressure on the government in order or pressure on MPs um, to create the report that they have. So um, at least for me, I'm sure for many others, um, well done. Thank you so much, Ben. And it's always a pleasure to speak to you guys. And uh, and I wish you all the best for everything. And hopefully get Evertonians back in us, you know, where we are, contact us. UK.org, come and help us. You know, we always need uh, people to rally around because it's about numbers. You know, we want those people to, you know, if you've if you if you're, uh, got the time to file off an angry note or a fang, an angry letter, then you've certainly got the time to uh, write a letter to an MP or, you know, contact us and add your support. We just need people to write up the sleeves and make it happen now. Brilliant. Have a good day and uh, let's hope that um, the good times come back. I'll come back when it's all done. <laughs> thanks now thanks very much cheers thanks a lot